TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Vandana Shiva, Terra Viva. To rescue and heal the living earth. In a Zoom call on the summer solstice of 2022 in India and the winter solstice in Australia, the founders of Spinaflex Press celebrated the publication of Vandana Shiva's most recent book, Terra Viva. Among her many prior books such as Soil Not Oil, Biopiracy, The Plunder of Nature and Knowledge, or Oneness versus the One Percent, this is the first that might be called a memoir. Her friend Maud Barlow says, Vandana Shiva has led an extraordinary life as a scientist, activist, and leader of a global movement for food sovereignty, and also tells the rich stories of the grassroots fight to take back sacred community knowledge and rights in India and around the world. Vandana Shiva's 50 years of activism and writing began with her volunteer work for the Chipko movement, women in India embracing trees to save them from the running chainsaws of loggers, to taking on the World Bank, corporations such as Monsanto, and Bill Gates' promotion of geoengineering and false climate solutions. Here is Susan Hawthorne, one of the two publishers at Spinaflex Press. There are some people who have a profound effect on the world, and Vandana Shiva is one of these people. Her work has been recognised with international awards, including the Right Livelihood Award, 1993, the John Lennon Yoko Ono Grant for Peace in 2008, the Sydney Peace Prize in 2010, Uh, the Calgary Peace Prize in 2011, Thomas Merton Award also 2011, and in 2012 she was the Fukuoka Grand Prize Laureate. So she's received prizes from many different countries. And her work has touched millions of people around the world, even those who have not read her books have been affected by her ideas. But Vandana's life is more than her books through which she's been able to get her ideas out to readers around the world. Her organisation, Navdanya, an important seed bank, among other things, uh, is a way of spreading useful information and knowledge, especially the knowledge of farmers, peasants and women. For some context, I first heard you speak about your book Staying Alive at the fourth International Feminist Book Fair in Barcelona. 1990 and it was in that giant room that looked like a ship a really yeah. strange place to begin with Vandana could you please speak a little about your family how your mother your father and your sister Mira a medical doctor influenced the ideas you've developed over the years I feel very blessed to have been born to my parents uh, my father, who was in the army, in the British army, and fought in the war in Burma, eventually shifted to forest conservation and became a forest officer. So we grew up in the forest with him. My mother, who was an educationist and inspectress of schools, suddenly, when a line was drawn, 
to divide India and Pakistan, she got trapped on the other side and became a refugee and had to come back as a refugee. And that's when she decided, now I'll be a farmer. She said, I've crossed all the glass ceilings. I don't want a government job. I'll be a farmer. So we grew up between the farm she was setting up as a refugee and the forests of the Himalaya. That's why the forests of the Himalaya have been so close to me. And eventually the reason I became a volunteer in the Chipko movement. Now, my sister, Mira, you know, she used to read these books in medicine. And I used to say, how can you even look at those ugly, bloody pictures? And she used to look at my books and math. So how can you even look at those equations? <laughs> we went our own path. She became a medical doctor, did her MD in medicine. I went on to do physics. And I, you know, had a science talent scholarship, um, which was given to 100 top students in India. We used to be sent to the top institutions and I was sent to the Baba Atomic Research Center and I was working in the fast breeder experimental reactor. I came home showing off, you know, of how exciting nuclear physics was and everything about Purnima and Mira just asked me a question. And what about the radiation? And it's not something we are taught in physics. We are taught transition equations. We are not taught radiation arms. So I went into theoretical physics, but Mira really woke me up to the fact that, you know, it, Fission equations are not just equations. They are related to what happens to life. And Mira has constantly been a person who has brought the living world uh, in a close way. We've done a lot of work together since then, partly because our lives converged you know, with biotechnology and we were together um, at the FinRage conference in, in Bangladesh. We were invited to the laws of life biotechnology conference, which is what started me on the seed journey. So we are now actually senior citizens. I don't feel that senior. And it's lovely to continue to be together and think together and live together, especially with COVID. You know, people suffered such loneliness. People suffered such rejection. And I feel grateful to my mother who left us this ancestral home and the lychee trees and the mango trees are loaded and the birds and the butterflies are there for our company. So thank you to my lovely family. You were also, of course, influenced by Gandhi, by Mirabin and uh, the Chipko movement, which you describe as your university for ecology. So what was it that made you move from theoretical physics to environmental activism? Yeah, I was passionate about, and I still am passionate about, quantum understanding of the world. It is still what has framed my thinking. But I came back to India the day I finished my thesis and, and had defended it. I took a flight back. I said, there are too many Indians who come to study in America and then live on. And um, at that time, you know, the luxury was instead of sweeping the floor, having a vacuum cleaner. I said, they get married to their vacuum cleaners and their cars and their big bungalows. And I just felt grateful to India for what I had received. And I wanted to understand the society more. I had offers to continue to do theoretical physics, but what I was very, very uneasy about the fact that we had such huge scientific institutions in India and the third largest scientific community of the world, and yet such huge poverty, because we are always told the more modern science you have, the less poverty you will have. Science removes poverty. And it, it was not an equation that was working out in real life. So I joined for three years, the Institute of Management after having worked a little bit in the Institute of Science. And that's when I started to understand exactly what was happening. That actually 
capital intensive technologies were polarizers. They were not removers of poverty, they were creators of polarized poverty. I watched it with fisheries, I watched it with agriculture. And it isn't that I said no to my passion for quantum theory, but my passion for ecology grew as a science with that interconnected world view about which Karthike, my son and I have written in our book, Oneness Versus 1%. Shipko became a place for me to learn more because I saw a forest disappear. And then that's where I talked about it in the book. Uh, I was so troubled. The tea shop owner at a place where I was waiting to catch the bus said, but now there's hope because there's Shipko. So I took a pledge. I was leaving for Canada to do my PhD. I said, I'll come back and make connection with Chipko. But Meera Behan, Sarla Behan, were Gandhians who used to visit our home when we were little babies and children because our parents were, were not only Gandhians themselves, but were very, very generous. I remember asking my mother once, why do you keep wearing the same three saris all the time? Yeah, because everyone else's mothers has these fancy clothing. And she replied, well, if I dressed up, there would be nothing left for you and nothing left for the people who come to our home as a commons. So Meera Ben, Sarla Ben, all of these were my early uh, visitors. And Chipko became, like I've said, my University of Ecology. It's from the women I learned the biodiversity, I, from the women I learned the interconnectedness. And I also learned from them that, you know, this patriarchal hierarchy of knowledges, you know, that there's those who go into labs and wear white lab coats and they become scientists. And the women who are working the forest and know every species and every process and every conservation process, uh, they are called illiterate, ignorant. And uh, I realized then that this idea of what I call epistemic apartheid was a very big part of capitalist patriarchy. And I learned ecology as a science through those who were living the ecology of being part of the forest. And the same carries on with Navdanya. Everything I learn, I learn from nature, or I learn from my sisters who are practicing farmers. And amazing, amazing. And I hope at the end of it, I will be able to share a very beautiful declaration that my sisters prepared at our last big gathering of Annapurna. In India, we we know that everything can be represented as light, as sound, as geometric form, the yantras, or as iconography. And all the good human values have a divine feminine form. So food has Annapurna, the goddess of food. And the farmers say, we are Annapurna, we feed the world. And they did a very, very beautiful powerful statement, which I'll pick up and share with you at the end of this dialogue, Susan, because you and Renate have been such stalwarts of the feminist movement, and especially taking up issues that were not even identified as feminist issues, like genetic engineering. Yes, well, thank you for that. So if you see, see me get up from my chair, it's because my dog is starting to whimper. Probably needs to go out, but I'm going to hang on with her as long as I can. So, the next chapter is the one called Trees of Life Saving the Forest. And you mention in that that Indian culture has its roots in the forest, the source of ideas and intellectual movement, but also about the deep knowledge base in India around forests, both traditionally 
and more recent scientific research, and that women have played an integral part in maintaining and building on those layers of knowledge. So how does this knowledge create and foster the CHIPCO movement? And how was it that you, that you were able to take a grassroots women-led movement to the attention of the World Bank? Yes, you know, India is a forest culture because till this craziness of globalization and neoliberalism, where it seems that only national purpose is to build highways to reach nowhere faster, you know, the biggest borrowing of India, of Sri Lanka, is all for building highways and power plants. As Tagore wrote so beautifully, we are a forest culture, yeah. And our sages and saints used to go off to the forest, you know, all the ashrams used to be in the forest. Mm. Um, how did this shape Chipko? Because Chipko started in the Himalaya, and the Himalaya is the forest culture. You wouldn't have agriculture without the forests. You could not even grow food without the oak forest. The oak forest, the streams for which women were fighting and, and women stood up and said, these are not timber mines. You are so mistaken to think this is just this much square foot of timber. These are the sources of our food and soil, water, air. This is what makes for life. The economy itself, was and still is based on the forest and biodiversity economy. And one of the big issues that we've developed in recent years is to help people remember that food is not the five commodities grown in industrially and traded globally. Food is everything that nourishes the world. It's the currency of life. But my sisters are now documenting all the indigenous food. The other day I was up in the mountains for our living democracy movement. 1999 was the first time they did it. The women basically got together and said, who are these people like the WTO and Monsanto's to say they invented the seed and it's the intellectual property of the corporations? Who's WTO to write the laws? These trees and forests are our family. We are daughters of the forest and they would write postcards and we had amazing action. This living democracy movement was remembered again a few months ago. And the women brought me all these wild fruits that are not counted as food. The work of the Chipko movement showed that forest economy is the ecology of water, it's the ecology of soil, it's the ecology of avoiding floods and landslides. When the floods and landslides started, it's the women who woke up. And what happened then was a 1978 flood after a logging. And that led to the government realizing that what women were saying were true, that the forests protected had a much bigger economy of providing stability, avoiding disasters, providing food and water than a forest cut. The forest cut had externalities. And that's when, because of the Chipko movement, not only did we get a logging ban in the high Himalaya, but the World Bank had to understand that the economy is not just extraction. The economy includes conservation. Of course, they then played tricks and then, you know, turned it, you know, commercial forestry into social forestry, amazing double speak that's happening right now. Uh, just yesterday, I was giving a talk to the ecological agriculture movement to destroy biodiversity. Now there's a language of biodiversity net gain where you can financially make money by buying and selling credits 
while the biodiversity is destroyed or the net zero of climate change. So for me, Chipko is such an important place of the reality of ecology and all the double speak of nature's economy, which is basically hijacking all of nature and all of nature's rights. It has become a very, very big basis for the growth and evolution of my own knowledge. Those were the days and they continue to be the basis of my constant, you know, that's where I check out reality. I constantly check out reality with the women on the ground, with the women in the forest, with the women on the farms. In the year 2000, you took um, the American company WR Grace to court uh, over their use of the neem tree. Why do you think you were successful in doing that? Because it's a really difficult task. <laughs> yeah. You might remember, and I've talked about it in the book, 1984 was a watershed for me that turned my attention to agriculture. The place where I had done my MSc honours in Punjab what was now erupting in violence. 30,000 people had been killed in the violence. But the Green Revolution, which was first implemented in Punjab, had received the Nobel Peace Prize. And I said, the story doesn't hang together. Mr. Bordlaw walks away with a peace prize and leaves a legacy of bloodshed. What's going on? That same year, 84, 2nd December, a pesticide plant leaked in the city of Bhopal, which was owned by Carbide, which has since then been bought by Dow, which has merged with DuPont and has now got a company called Corteva. And they put very fancy advertisements in BBC as if it's news. You know, Union Carbide has this ad it was a beaker with red pouring over a farmer on a, with a plow saying, carbide has a hand in India's future. And with that blood pouring down, it was, you know, it was a metaphor of what the disaster, the disaster union carbide would unleash. As soon as the disaster happened, Mira, my sister went up for medical relief. And she's the one who informed me that when they wanted to know what was the gas that leaked so they could give, the antidotes, Union Carbide said, we cannot let you know because it's a trade secret. They let people die for a trade secret. I went down three days later with neem trees because neem controls pests without killing people. Yeah, it's a natural pest control agent. So I started in 1984, campaign called No More Bhopal's Plant a Neem. 10 years later, I find it's been patented in a journal on biotechnology, the first ever use of neem for biopesticide, invention, patent, WR race. So I asked my, uh, my friend Beth Burroughs to look deeper into the patent. And then I joined hands with Magda Alwit, who was the president of the Greens in, in the European Parliament, and Linda Bullard, who had been the president of the organic farming movement. And she joined exclusively to make sure that GMOs were not ever allowed in the organic standards. So I contacted them and we jointly worked to challenge not just WR Grace, but with WR Grace, the USDA was part of the filing of the patent. And when you ask, how were we successful? First, we mobilized on the ground. I collected 100,000 signatures to take to the European Patent Office. The people of India were deeply involved. We connected the knowledge of the farmers who used neem and the knowledge of the scientists who had researched neem to show that this patent was based totally on piracy. These were publications where we knew that 
neem acts as a fungicide, as a pesticide. But I think at the end of the, of the day, it was the sisterhood between the three of us. We trusted each other. We gave time and knowledge to each other. If I could travel, I'd travel. If I couldn't, Linda and, um, and Magda would fill in. And you know, we had no money. We had zero money. We found a wonderful lawyer who gave his time pro bono to fight the case for us. But if the three of us hadn't joined hand, there is no way a case of biopiracy of Neem could have been fought from India in the European Patent Office. And I remember this so clearly. We won in the first round, and then Grace and the USDA challenged and put an appeal. And I think it was 2014 on Women's Day, 8th of March. You know, the judges said, you can go for lunch break, we'll give you the judgment after. And they came back and all they said after the lunch break was, congratulations, happy Women's Day. And in a way they gave this as a gift to us as three women warriors fighting against the piracy by the biggest superpower and one of the biggest chemical companies of the world, which constantly reminds me again and again and again, solidarity, trust, friendship is the power we have. Yes, yes, indeed, that's absolutely true. Now, the other um, subject that you keep coming back to again and again is that of food security. And you write a lot about that in the chapter on Seeds of Freedom. And you wrote about it in The Violence of the Green Revolution, which was one of your earliest books, 1992. And you revisited in the anthology Seed Sovereignty, Food Security, which came out in 2015. So what is so important about food security? Is it something that affects people, mostly people in poverty, or is this something that reaches to the rich countries as well? Well, you know, as I mentioned a little earlier, the Green Revolution itself was a myth. First of all, it was, you, they misused the word green. There was nothing green about that revolution. It left the brown of desertification. It left the red of bloodshed. And that's why I wrote The Violence of the Green Revolution. It destroyed the soil. It destroyed the biodiversity only to sell chemicals. Mr. Borlaug repeatedly said this whole thing is to sell more fertilizers. So they changed the plants and got rid of the biodiversity. In effect, they reduced the food production, but they confused the food production in a farm with the movement of commodities. And I think that is probably the deepest myths of capitalist patriarchy. They replace creation in nature, creation by women, creation by peasants, and make it look zero. Yeah like it's not an economy and only what can be extracted the commodity that gets traded is measured as high yield so i started to work to show you no know, this if you look at the total output of a system this is the low yield system we work then on seeds these are low yielding seeds because they're nutritionally empty um why is food security so important because food is what we live by food is life and everyone has to eat not everyone today is growing food, but it was the case that most countries were primarily agrarian countries before industrialism and industrial agriculture, and definitely before globalization. Everyone is frantic about the Ukraine war and Africa starving, but why is Africa dependent? Such a large continent, such abundant knowledge. Why are they having to depend on wheat, which is not their staple crop? It's the land of millets. 
is a land of arid areas. So the dependency created by the Green Revolution and now Mr. Gates with the Alliance for the Green Revolution in Africa is creating food insecurity by destroying the food bases in biodiversity and ecological agriculture. The GMOs were the second myth. They often called the second green revolution. You can't produce morphogenic engineering. All you do is take an existing plant and its productive capacity, and you shoot with a gene gun, a toxic gene. That's all they have achieved, a gene to express Bt toxin or a herbicide-resistant gene. One to sell more Roundup, the other to sell more pesticides. The claim was it will control pests and weeds. Instead, in India, we have super pests. Hundreds of thousands of farmers have committed suicide because of the indebtedness. And in America, half the farmland is overtaken by super weeds. Now they're coming with the new GMOs called gene editing. Just yesterday, I sent a message because the women's movement of uh, Japan is having to fight these gene edited tomatoes, which these companies are now pushing on schools to make the school children grow and eat them. And I say this is a violation against the rights of the children. But gene editing is not an accurate technology. You know, they were trying to breed hamsters with gene editing to make them more peaceful. And instead, they became more aggressive because A, the traits don't lie in the gene. And two, every tampering of one gene is a tampering of the whole genome. So the place where genetic engineering is wrong is it's based on a false science, a scientifically reductionist paradigm. And that's why thin rage exists. Does it affect only the poor? It affects the poor farmers because of high costs of seed, but it affects the rich countries too, because if everyone is eating glyphosate resistant GMO soya and corn, you're going to have sickness. The fact that we have chronic diseases is because of the total damage to the gut microbiome. And while they kept saying glyphosate is safe for humans, glyphosate impacts the bacteria in our gut microbiome. And now there is proof of how much damage glyphosate is doing. And I'm so happy that finally the courts of the US have woken up and said the EPA cheated in declaring this was safe. It must be declared as a carcinogen, which it used to be before Morse and Monsanto bribe. So the GMO story became such a big part of my story is a story of corruption of science. It's a story of, of influence of the poison cartel over agriculture and our food system. And it is a story we must put an end to because there's enough diversity in the world and women have enough knowledge how to grow diversity to ensure we have food security. That was part of an interview of the Indian environmental activist, advocate for food and seed sovereignty, eco-feminist and anti-globalization campaigner, Vandana Shiva. Find the one-hour video of this Zoom conversation on YouTube under the title Terra Viva by Vandana Shiva online book launch. And thanks to the publishers of Spiniflex Press for the Australian edition. In the US, the book Terra Viva by Vandana Shiva will be available from Chelsea Green in October of 2022. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org.
open the newest programs page and scroll down. This program was produced off the grid with solar power. TUC Radio's free to all radio stations and free as podcast online. You can contact TUC Radio online at tucradio.org. The email is tuc at tucradio.org. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening.